0: Well, I'm glad that we've had that uh, backdrop of joy uh, in preparation for this morning's message as we go back to Romans 1. that doesn't seem very joyful, and, uh, and yet this is a good balance, amen, uh, to remember this, um, this season of joy. Well, before you turn to Romans 1, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis 18. Genesis 18, and apart from the worldwide flood in Genesis 6, I think the most notorious manifestation of God's wrath in the Old Testament is obviously the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not, or or If you've ever read the Bible or not, you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody knows the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It came in the context of God sending two angels to uh, announce to Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a child, um, Isaac. And while uh, the two angels were there, the Lord told Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course that was a concern to Abraham because his nephew Lot lived there. And it says in Genesis 18 verse 20 the Lord said, "The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave." And so that's really the setup for the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. Verse one. Let's read this familiar account. Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This is one who came in as an alien. And already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated, and so the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, escape for your life, do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley, escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown uh, me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there, that my life may be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And verse 24, here it is. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham rose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke Of a furnace. God totally incinerated the original sin cities, if you will. And according to archaeological research, their remains are under the south end of the Dead Sea somewhere. And if you've ever traveled to that part of the the world, it's really just a desolate wasteland. Now, liberal scholars and Homosexual advocates would have us believe that, that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah simply for not showing hospitality to their angelic guests. But the Bible clearly states specifically in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, that among other sins like pride and gluttony and a lack of concern for the poor and the needy, the primary reason that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah was the abominable, detestable sin of homosexuality. And this haunting incident of divine judgment was referred to over 20 times throughout the rest of Scripture by both prophets and apostles, including Jesus himself. And it's as if Sodom and Gomorrah was to serve as an unforgettable example of how much God hates sin. And it sends an unmistakable message to all future generations that he will punish sin. Even the apostle Paul mentioned the account of Sodom and Gomorrah here in Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 24 Speaking of the nation of Israel, he says, as he also says in Hosea, I think I wrote down the wrong reference, verse 29, excuse me, 929, and just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. He was quoting Isaiah chapter one, verse nine, which says, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. The prophet Amos said this in Amos 4.11, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from the blaze, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. He's confronting the nation of Israel. Jesus said to his disciples when they Went out when he sent them out among the cities to share the gospel. If if anyone, if any city rejected them, he said, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Peter, in second Peter chapter two, verse six, in the context of God judging false teachers. He said, he condemned, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And then Jude, in Jude 7, again, in the context of God's judgment of false teachers, he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What are we to take from Jude's words there? I would submit to you that Sodom and Gomorrah was intended to be a preview of hell. He's referring to eternal fire here. God supernaturally expressed his anger against The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah by raining down fire and brimstone from heaven. Which, as you know, the Bible describes hell with the same kind of language. It's a place burning with what? Fire and brimstone. We see this multiple times in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, talking about those who uh, take the mark of the beast, who worship the Antichrist. It says this, and he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In chapter 19, verse 20, we see that the, the, the beast and the Antichrist are, are sent to hell, if you will, and the beast was seized, this is nineteen twenty with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and then in chapter 20 verse 10 we see satan himself following the path of the beast and the false prophet and all those who worshiped him in verse uh, 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then in Revelation 21, verse 8, John makes reference to all unbelievers will end up in hell alongside the devil and the Antichrist and the false prophet and those who worship him. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters, all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Don't miss the imagery of fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah and fire and brimstone in hell. It's as if rather than sending the people of Sodom and Gomorrah to hell, it's as if God sent hell to them. And it's no wonder that to this day, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are synonymous with sin, particularly the sin of homosexuality. We have words in our vernacular that are based on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the word sodomy or sodomize are metaphors to describe homosexual acts. In fact, you probably know this, but up until fourteen just 14 years ago, our country actually had sodomy laws that defined certain deviant, unnatural sexual acts as crimes. In fact, it was an incident that took place right here in Houston back in 1998 that brought about the end of the sodomy laws in the United States. You may remember the story. Two gay men were arrested in northeast Harris County and charged with committing deviant sexual acts. They were charged with sodomy. And of course, that case case was protested and it eventually went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 2003, the Supreme Court ruled to strike down the sodomy sodomy laws here in Texas and, and making homosexual activity legal in every state. And that sad decision set the stage for further reconsiderations of standing laws, including the landmark case just two years ago in which the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. And so as we consider the the rapid decline of biblical morality that is taking place in our country, I I can't think of a more relevant passage for us to to consider than the one we have before us here in Romans chapter one. Because we have here in, in verses 18 through 32, a a spirit inspired critique of exactly what is happening in America today. And what Paul was doing in these verses, he was was simply giving a graphic description of of, of God's wrath against man's wickedness. Simply put, God is justifiably angry at those who reject his clear revelation of himself, and he will punish them accordingly. Now, again, we need to understand this passage in its proper context. And Paul has just gotten done stating the theme of the letter in verses 16 and 17. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And rather than... Immediately explaining how the righteousness of God is revealed, Paul chose instead to focus on why the righteousness of God must be revealed, and that is that man is unrighteous and under, under God's wrath. And so chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 verse 20 is, is just simply describing our lack of Righteousness. And we don't have what it takes to get to heaven and to be right with God, and so God has to give us his righteousness. John MacArthur has said it this way in, in his excellent commentary on Romans. He said, quote, Paul is determined for us to know that before we can understand the grace of God, we must first understand his wrath. That before we can understand the meaning of the death of Christ, we must first understand why man's sin made that death necessary. That before we can begin to comprehend how loving, merciful, and gracious God is, we must first see how rebellious, sinful, and guilty unbelieving mankind is. In other words, having a a better understanding of God's wrath against man's wickedness makes us more grateful for our salvation, does it not? That, That we didn't get what we deserved. At the same time, it also motivates us to share the gospel, the good news of salvation about how they can escape, others can escape the the wrath to come. And so I think in order to impress on his readers and us the urgency of preaching the gospel to others, Paul explained three particulars of God's, what we're calling, righteous rage against man's unrighteous rebellion against him. And so this passage just breaks up in three parts, the revelation of God's rage, verses 18 to 20, the reason for God's rage in verses 21 to 23, and the result of God's rage in verses 24 through 32. And again, we're choosing this title, righteous rage, just as a a synonym for the wrath of God. And, and, and what is the wrath of God? It's simply God's judgment against man's sin. And it says, for the wrath of God is revealed, literally is being revealed. And so while there is a, a future aspect of God's wrath, which will take place during the great tribulation that we just read about in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, and, and at the second coming of Christ, God will unleash his anger against Everyone who refuses to honor and obey him, and even against the earth itself, he'll unleash his wrath. Well, that's not what Paul was talking about here. Paul was talking about a present aspect of God's wrath, namely that God punishes sin now by unleashing people to become more and more depraved. which is, by the way, the consequence of disregarding God and disobeying his commands. Notice he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, in order to hold on to our sin, we hold down the truth of God's existence. We suppress it. We act like he doesn't exist so we can live the way we want to live. But according to Paul... Everyone knows there is a God because God made himself knowable through his creation and our conscience. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, no one will ever be able to make any excuses of God that they didn't know that he was there or that they don't deserve to be punished for their sinful rebellion against him. And so that's a simple overview of this revelation of God's wrath. And then we say, well, why is God so angry? What is the reason for God's rage? Well, he says in verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was dark and professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawly creatures. And he goes on to state even more in verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So instead of acknowledging God and honoring God and obeying God, man rejects God's clear revelation and rebels against him, they Disrespectful, they don't give him the recognition that he deserves for who he is, they're ungrateful, they don't give him the appreciation he deserves for what he does, and so they foolishly and futilely try to live out their lives apart from him, which requires and results in us believing a bunch of lies. If you reject the truth, there's only the only thing left is what a lie. And so that's essentially what he says. Two times, verse 23, verse 25, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the of man. They exchanged the truth of God for life. Can you imagine somebody trading in a Lambo for a Pinto? I mean, you just have this beautiful brand new Lamborghini and you're like, you know what? I'd rather have that Pinto, that old beat up Pinto. You'd be like, what is your problem Why would you do that? That makes absolutely no sense at all. That that is the most foolish thing you've ever done in your life. That's the idea. There's a foolishness here. For example, talking about exchanging, swapping truth for lies. How about evolution? It's one of the greatest lies that have been perpetuated down throughout the years in classrooms across our country, and it's a lie that that many believe, but what they fail to admit is that evolution didn't lead them to not believe in God, but unbelief in God led them to believe in evolution. In other words, it was like, well, look at this evolution. Yeah, you know what? If that's true, then there can't be a God. No, it was like, you know what? We don't want God, so let's Believe in a lie. Let's just come up with this crazy thing about this big bang and things crawling out of swamps and monkeys turning into men and, and, and let's just come up with this stuff so that we don't have to think about God. We don't have to deal with God. Evolution is probably the most obvious lie, but how about, how about religion? Do you ever think about the lie of religion There's a lot of religions in the world today, aren't there? And I think the abundance of religions doesn't prove man's devotion to God, but it proves man's depravity. You're like, whoa, wait a minute, let me think about that. Doesn't, Doesn't religion, it's all about being devoted to God? No, it shows man's depravity. And ironically, religion is not an upward movement toward God, it's a downward movement away from God. Especially when you think about these religions that worship images, men, Buddha, we talked about, Ganesh in Hinduism, crawling creatures, four-footed animals. You know, I'll never forget taking a group of students to a Hindu temple in Malibu, California, of all places, and uh, not every kid in America can make it to India, right, to go on that short-term mission trip and be exposed to Hinduism, but... There was a Hindu temple I found out about in Malibu, California. I thought, hey, I'm going to take as many kids as will come. Check this out. We can, in our own country, we can, be, we can be impacted and grieved by false religion. And so we were there watching this, this worship of Ganesh, um, this grotesque God in this temple up in the hills of Malibu. And uh, I just, I didn't say a thing. I just, I just stood there and I just, I just told the kids, I don't want you to say anything, just watch. And we'll talk about it afterwards. And it was just heartbreaking. And I'll never forget, as we were leaving, I noticed a little sign, a little plaque at the front door, the front gate of this temple. And this is what it said, and I wrote it down. This temple belongs to the Hindu community of America. It symbolizes their devotion to God and dedication to the spiritual uplift of humanity. I thought, how, that is just, that's a lie. I mean, if if you wanted the truth, you could say this, that this symbolizes their deviation from God and their dedication to the spiritual downfall of humanity. That's the truth. Paul's point is simply this, that man has flagrantly rebelled against God and his revelation. And should we be surprised that he's angry with us? I mean, this is the most egregious crime anyone could ever commit, and so it deserves the most severe punishment imaginable. And so we see the revelation of God's rage and the reason for God's rage, and then last week we, we began to wade into this final section of Romans 1, looking at the result of God's rage in verses 24 through 32. And, and we said that we, we need to understand that the present tense ongoing revealing of God's wrath that Paul was referring to here doesn't come in the form of tsunamis and earthquakes and, and, and volcanoes and, and, and tornadoes and, 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 and uh, hurricanes and floods and, and fires and mass shootings like some churches, you know, whenever those things happen, they get out there, you know, they go to the closet in the church, they pull out their picketing signs and they start picketing around and saying, look, this is God's wrath on our nation, when when these mass shootings happen, or when dead soldiers come back from some uh, terrorist attack, and uh, I'm referring to, of course, Westboro Baptist Church and uh, Phelps, their leader, uh, it's just it's an, it's a misunderstanding of this present revelation of God's wrath. What Paul says is it's not any of these things. It's 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 giving people over to their sin. Three times he says it, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. Three times, it's it's this, this term, this judicial phrase, which was used to describe a judge sentencing someone or handing them over to be punished. This was retribution. This is payback. This is vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Our vengeance is typically sinful. His is righteous. And so instead of showing mercy towards us by restraining us from our sin... And as consequences, God reveals his wrath against us by by allowing us to continue in our sin so that we go deeper into sin and we do grosser things than we could have ever imagined and as a result, we experience greater consequences. And I said it last week that the punishment for sin is more sin. And it all starts with the sin of idolatry, exchanging the glory of God for idols exchanging the truth for lie, and that idolatry leads to this downward spiral of immorality, then homosexuality, and then ultimately to irrationality, or simply insanity. And so we see, first of all, um, a, a reference to Sexual immorality in general. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that they, those, their bodies would be dishonored among them. And again, I mentioned last week this flood of sexual harassment claims that we've been hearing about in the news over the last few weeks. It's just, just proof how perverted our society has become. Or maybe has been. And now we're just having to deal with it. So It's a, it's a reckoning What's been going on? For, for decades, there's been a sexual revolution taking place in our country, and it's now to the point that sex is no longer a gift from God reserved for marriage, but it's simply a tryst to have with anyone, anytime, anywhere. And those who save themselves for marriage and stay faithful to their spouse are viewed as oddballs or prudes. Again, this is all evidence that America is under God's judgment. He's giving us over to sexual immorality. But it gets worse. Again, he says, God gave them over, verse 26, for this reason. God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned the desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Obviously, this is a reference to homosexuality, and we know that God, through the writers of Scripture has made it abundantly clear what he thinks about homosexuality. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death. And then in the New Testament, Paul says, references the law in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but we know that the law is good. We know that Leviticus is good. Law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And just that simple phrase that homosexuality is contrary to to sound teaching. We should never condone anything that the Bible condemns. And yet there are those who are trying to reinterpret these passages and and, and make them say something, "Eh, that's not really what God meant when he said that. And they reinterpret it. It's very clear, It's, it's contrary to sound teaching. That is not sound teaching. That is heresy, in other words. And so biblically, God condemns homosexuality. He considers it an abominable crime worthy of death. But even if we were to rule out the Bible, or reinterpret what it says about homosexuality, look at it from a purely biological perspective, an anatomical perspective, It's obvious that God designed men and women to have sexual relations with someone of the opposite sex rather than someone of the same sex. I mean, the body of a man and the body of a woman fit naturally together. They're a perfect match. It's just pure common sense. Even in the plumbing industry and the electrical industry, those of you that... that that work in those careers, in those fields. You you always talk about male and female parts. And hey, I got to go get a part that fits this part, and they they connect together. It's interesting, just in those fields, plumbing and electric, we talk about male-female parts. So it it really is a a no-brainer when you think about it. Back to the Bible, though, because this is where we need to draw our convictions from. According to the Bible, it's assumed that men will lust after women. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, if a man lusts after a woman or looks at a woman lustfully in her heart, it says what? He's committed adultery with her. There's an assumption there. Um, it's also assumed that women will burn with passion for men. Um, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Verse 9, talking about widows, Uh, if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so there's an assumption that men are going to lust after a woman and women are going to lust after men or desire men. We're going to desire the opposite sex, and that's why God wisely and graciously designed marriage to be a righteous outlet for these natural desires that he's given to us. However, it's unnatural for a man to lust after another man or a woman to lust after another woman. It's just unnatural. That's what it says. When I was a youth pastor, I often had opportunity to counsel young men who would come and they wanted to talk about purity. It's kind of like survey says, number one issue young guys struggle with and they need some encouragement with, need some help with, some counsel. It's, it's purity, Holiness. And so if, if a guy came to me and said that he was struggling with lust after, lusting after girls, I would, in order to give him hope, I, I, I'd start by saying, you know, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I wanted them to know that what they were experiencing was normal, it was natural, but they needed to change. They needed to repent. They needed to pursue holiness. But if a guy ever came to me and confided in me that they were lusting after guys, I wouldn't tell them it was a good thing. I wanted them to know that what they were experiencing was unnatural, according to what Romans 1, 26 and 27 says. But there was still hope for them to change too. And the same verse applied to both types of guys, 1 Corinthians Corinthians 10.13, what? No temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to men, and God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. The point being is we all battle against the same kinds of temptation, and God is faithful to help us overcome those, whatever they may be. And the truth of the matter is, some of us are tempted to lust after those of the opposite sex, while others of us may be tempted to lust after those of the same sex. And even saying that, some of you are like, okay, this is getting awkward now. But what we need to keep in mind that what may be repulsive to us may be a serious temptation for someone else. Now, having said that, let me clarify something that I think needs to be clarified in our day, especially in the church today, in regards to sexual orientation. And that is this. We shouldn't think that same-sex attraction is no different or on the same level as every other sin. Paul didn't put it on the same level. There's a a degrading, there's there's a spiraling down here. Things are getting worse and worse here. And you can look throughout Scripture and there, you can make an argument that there are different degrees of sin. In fact, you could even make a case that there's different degrees of hell. What did, what did Jesus mean when he said it's going to be worse off for those people than it is for Sodom and Gomorrah come the Judgment Day? I mean, they, again, you're, 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 there's only a just a couple references where you could potentially make that, that argument. But, but the point is this. There, there's, a, there's a growing movement in the church right now being led by well-meaning people who want to show compassion toward homosexuals without condoning homosexuality. And, and they want to create a culture in the church where people feel comfortable talking about their sin and, and their struggles, which, hey, I'm all for that. We, 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 we've tried to create that culture where we're open and honest about our sin, and we all admit we're the worst sinner we know. But it's gotten blurry. I'll give you one example. There's a guy named James Albury who has written a book called Is God Anti-Gay? What's interesting about this man, he's an Anglican pastor in England, who openly admits that he struggles with same-sex attraction, but he chooses not to act on these desires and has remained celibate. And In fact, he even de- defends a biblical view of marriage. So he's kind of an enigma. It's like, okay, you're admitting that you struggle with these things, you're remaining celibate, you're not acting on those things, and you actually believe that the Bible teaches that marriage is only for men and women. And so in some ways, that's given him a voice... Within the evangelical church, and people have been reading his book and listening to the things he has to say, and this is what he would have us to believe that same-sex attraction or homosexual desires are okay as long as you don't act on them. And there's no difference between a man lusting after a woman and a man lusting after another man, and the latter is no more sinful than the former. It's just all the same. We all have our struggles. Well, I asked Jacob last week what he thought about that. Jacob's our budding theologian. We were driving to church last week, and I said, hey, Jacob, let me ask you a question. I was testing out my sermon on him. I said, is it the same thing for a guy to lust after a girl as it is for a guy to lust after a guy? And he thought about it for a little while, and he's just kind of hemmed and hawed. He's like, uh, man, I, I, don't, I don't know how to say it, Dad. I don't want to be mean. And, but it, uh, it, it's, just, it's just not natural. Bingo! That's exactly what Romans went. That's the language, that's the exact word that Paul used to describe this situation. I said, you nailed it, buddy. Good job. And then I told him about this guy in England, and the book he wrote, and kind of his belief, his conviction about, you know, it's okay to be, have these desires as long as you don't act on them, and, and uh, you know, he's celibate, and I and, uh, said, so what do you think about that? <laughs> and Jacob said, I think that guy's confused and just needs to get a wife. <laughs> and I'm like, amen, Jacob. See, there's an exchange going on. There's an inversion going on of what is normal, what is natural. And I pointed out, verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And guess what? They exchanged the natural desire. Notice that in verse 26. Your woman exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. One exchange leads To another exchange. And so anyone who chooses a homosexual lifestyle is telling the world that they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And rather than seeing them as someone that disgusts us, we should just simply say, you know, that they're just just envision them with a big old t-shirt that just says, I need Jesus. (laughs) Because that's what they're saying, I need Christ. And notice it says here, men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. In other words, they're going to suffer the consequences. And 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 listen, if you're, if I confused you earlier with talking about different degrees of sin, listen, all sin is equally offensive to God. Amen. All sin is equally offensive to God. But the greater the degree of sin, the greater the consequences of that sin. And there's a reason why there are some things that are rampant within the homosexual community, whether it be AIDS or other STDs or just loneliness and despair and the suicide rate. If you do any research about the... The suicide rate is much higher than in other sectors of people. And, And even... Even the, the um, legal system has noticed that there's more violent crime in that community. There, there's just, it seems like there's a higher, a greater level of jealousy that goes on in that community. And so, again, the point here is this, and I made this last week, I said this last week, but because it's true of sexual immorality uh, and it's also true of homosexuality, what we see going on in our country is not the cause of God's wrath, but the consequence of it. In other words, homosexuality isn't the reason for God's judgment, but the judgment itself. It's a giving over. And the Bible, again, is very clear. God hates homosexuality. And he will judge those who practice it with eternal damnation in hell. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter six. And you gotta turn here. This is, If you you haven't heard anything else, if you don't remember anything else, please remember this passage. I love this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, which you know the city of Corinth was extremely immoral. In fact, the church itself had all sorts of immorality going on. Paul had to confront in as, as close as first, first Corinthians chapter 5 that there was immorality in the church the kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. There was this incestuous relationship between new members of the church and they weren't doing anything about it. So Paul had to confront them. That just gives you a little feel for the what it's like to be in the church in Corinth and living in the city of Corinth, right? But notice 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, unrighteous people will not go to heaven. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But you can't stop there. Because while God hates homosexuality, while he promises to judge those who practice homosexuality with eternal damnation and hell, at the very same time, he extends grace and hope to homosexuals. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you. In other words, some of you were fornicators, adulterers, effeminate homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That should just make you want to whoop right there. That's the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, there were former homosexuals in the church in Corinth. Just as there are former homosexuals in our church, in every biblical church around the world, as there should be. Those whose lives have been radically transformed by the gospel. And they have regenerated hearts and so they're praising their savior alongside former fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and thieves and coveters and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. We want to start talking about your sin? And some might look at this and go, well, how how is that possible? What is it such were some of you? Like, wait a minute, you're not one anymore? You're you're no longer a homosexual? You you used to be, but now you're not? I I thought this was like a a gene thing, a genetic thing. I I thought this is just the way you were, the way God made you. Well, this is the hope. That homosexuality is not something you're born with. There's not a gay gene, if you will, nor is it some kind of disease or disorder that has no cure. A person can change their sexual orientation by choosing to desire what God designed them to desire. It's called repentance, change. I've been desiring this. Oh, the Bible says that's, not what I should desire. In fact, that's unnatural. That's not the way he designed it to be. That's not how he wired me to be. Okay, then I'm going to do what the Bible says and I'm going to desire what he tells me to desire, what he wired me to desire. And obviously that may be a long, challenging process. It's not like snap your fingers and that's all going to change, all going to go away. But with the help of God's word, the help of his spirit, the help of the body of Christ, right? We walk with people as they're sanctified. And they become they, 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 they sin less and less, right? And and desire more and more of what God wants them to desire. Well, as if it couldn't get any worse, <laughs> it does because we go from sexual morality to homosexuality to what I would call moral insanity. Notice verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, again, he's just reminding us, oh, by the way, this is all because they don't acknowledge God. They've kind of punted God. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. That, Expression, depraved mind, interesting word. Again, it's, it's, it's the describing a mind that no longer functions properly. You think and you act irrationally. You say and do things that don't make any sense. You call good evil and you call evil good. And there's no lack of examples of the, the lunacy of our present culture. How about the Boy Scouts? Decided to allow gays to be part of their organization. Now, they've opened it up to girls. What, why do you call it Boy Scouts? They have Girl Scouts. That seems to make sense. It doesn't make sense. That's the point. It's irrational. How about gender-neutral restrooms? That was the big debate a few years ago. Guys and gals allowed to use the same space at the same time? Does that make any sense? No. How about this? We, we go to great lengths and spend enormous amounts of money to save the forests and the oceans and, and all the endangered species on the planet, but we don't think twice about aborting babies. That's irrational. That doesn't make any sense. The new trigger issue that has brought us, really our country, to the next cultural crossroad is transgenderism. I can't think of a better illustration of a depraved mind, a mind that no longer functions properly, that thinks irrationally. You know as well as I do, some of our leading magazines have had transgender people on their front covers. National Geographic had a nine year old boy who had transitioned to become a girl. Time Magazine, and of course, Vanity Fair unveiled Caitlyn Jenner, who has really become the spokesperson for the whole transgender movement. And, um, you follow any of that, he, and I'm calling him a he because he is a he, took an Instagram or sent out an Instagram of him dressed in a woman's bathing suit walking down the beach and this is what he said, free, I'm free to be myself and I thought how tragic, how ironic when really you're a slave. You're not free. You're a you're slave to your sin. Deuteronomy 22.5, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Let me just say it this way. There is no such thing as a transgender person. There just isn't. God creates everyone either male. Or female, You're either a, a he or a she, and a he shouldn't be called a she and vice versa. The title on that Vanity Fair magazine was, Call Me Caitlin. And my first thought is, no, I'm going to call you Bruce. Because that's who you are, even though you may think or feel like you're a woman trapped in a man's body. And see, based on Romans 1, again, we're just going back to the scriptures, driving our minds back to scripture to make sure we think biblically. Listen, those who claim to be transgender are out of touch with reality. They're out of their mind. They're claiming to be someone other than who God made them to be or assigned them to be, if you want to use that language. And transgender individuals are at war with God. They're basically saying, listen, I'm not going to let God tell me who I am. I'm going to be my own God. And they end up playing God by having what used to be called a sex change surgery. Now it's a a gender reassignment surgery to alter how God created them. And parents are now even subjecting their kindergarten age children to these gender reassignment surgeries just because the kid thinks they're in the wrong body. A little kid's playing with Barbies. A little boy's playing with Barbies instead of G.I. Joe's and vice versa. And oh, oh no, we've got to fix this. I mean, that is absolutely, what? Crazy. But that's what it means. God has given us over to a depraved mind. Our mind doesn't work properly anymore. And then he just goes on and, and, and gives this list of, of 21 vices that I think are basically self-explanatory. Notice verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteous, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Oh, wow, how'd that get in that list? Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, By the way, this just kind of brings us all into this, okay? Because I guarantee you there's something in that list that you're guilty of. There's things in that list I'm guilty of. And so lest we sit here with an arrogant, smug, self-righteous attitude, looking down our noses at the wicked, detestable things that other people do. No, we're in this description. This is not those guys. This is us. Verse 32, he wraps a little bow around this whole thing, ties it off nicely. Verse 32, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. In other words, he goes back to, hey, they know. They know that God has ordained that these things are wrong and those who practice them are worthy of death. They not only do the same but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I mean, this is the climax of man's depravity, his perversity, that all the sins that we should have stopped from happening and condemned, we've promoted, we've defended, we've rationalized, we've legalized to create a culture where these things are not just accepted, but they're applauded. I don't even know what's on anymore, but... The Jerry Springer Show, to me, was the classic example of let's find the most deviant people doing the weirdest stuff, let's put them on this TV show, and let's listen to them and watch them fight with each other, and we're just going to all applaud them. Good for you. That's good for you. It's crazy. And not only are these things accepted, not only are they applauded, they're even now awarded. We're giving awards out to people for being these things. And of course, if you're into sports, you might know about the SP Awards, right? And this last year, Caitlyn Jenner received the the Courage Award for how courageous he's been. And, you know, to see all these celebrities and all these athletes sitting on the edge of their seat listening to his speech with tears coming down their faces and then standing up and giving a standing ovation. That's giving hearty approval to those who practice these things. But they know. They know. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Ephesians 5, verse 5, For this you know with certainty, you know this, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And Paul repeated himself in Colossians, said basically the same thing, but added a a little phrase here that I want you to see. Colossians chapter three, verse five. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly bodies as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to, remember what he said? Idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. I read that because we just need to be reminded that all these things that we're talking about here are merely symptomatic. Sexual morality, homosexuality, transgenderism, the insanity, the irrationality of our society, they're all symptoms of a much deeper-rooted problem, and that's idolatry. And the root issue in the heart of those who practice these sins is that they've rejected God's revelation, and they're rebelling against Him, and they're worshiping themselves. And so don't focus on the sin, focus on the heart issue. What's the root issue there? That's where you need to go with these people when you're talking to these people. Kelly and I were driving uh, last week, and a car went by us on 105 and had the bumper sticker One Nation Under God. And I think there are, are many Americans, right? who presume that because we still have that line in our pledge, right, one nation under God, or, or we have in God we trust on our money, that God will just continue to bless our country like he, he always has, and he has, amen, he has. But based on the way our country is going, I'm not sure why God would continue to bless us or if he's even able to continue to bless us. Kelly and I both agreed that maybe the bumper sticker that would be more accurate is one nation under God's wrath. You see, when a nation abandons God, God returns the favor and abandons them. And they degenerate and they disintegrate, and it's happened all throughout history. Look at the story of Rome. Paul was writing to the Romans. Do some research on the downfall of Rome and how that happened, why that happened. You'll You'll be stunned, scared by the similarities between Roman culture and American culture today. Well, listen, this is. I don't want to wreck your Christmas or anything. It doesn't sound very merry, right? Merry Christmas here. And, and hey, let's just be honest. I mean, it'd be very easy to walk away from a message like this, a passage like this, with a sense of despair, a sense of hopelessness, not, not just in regards to our own country, but our own souls. Can I remind you of the good news of the gospel? That on the cross, Christ, bore God's judgment for our sin. God poured out his righteous rage against sin on Christ. And he hates sin so much that he was willing to abandon his own son. And I think that's what Christ was saying when he, we cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou, what? Forsaken me. God had abandoned him. And God abandoned Jesus so he wouldn't have to abandon us. And as long as we're alive, God provides us an opportunity to repent of our sin, to be rescued from his wrath, by placing our faith in what Jesus accomplished for us in his life and his death. And by his grace, God will rescue all of us who repent of our unrighteousness and by faith receive the righteousness of God that he's provided through the sinless life and sacrificial death of Christ. Turn to one more passage, and then we'll close. Second Peter chapter 3, and, and we just have to look at this because it brings this whole message full circle. We started by talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and how it was a preview of hell, it was a preview of the end times and what was going to happen when God sends his son a second time to judge the earth, and in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter describes this by his word. This is 1 Peter, 2 Peter 3, 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. In other words, those of you who are saying, yeah, whatever. They've been saying that for years. It ain't happened yet. Well, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God has righteous rage, but he's also very patient. He has righteous, righteous patience. Why? Because he wants people to come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, when you're not expecting it, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. If you've been watching the news about these California wildfires, somebody, one of the guys said, man, I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard this roaring of the flames just, just coming by my house. That's the idea, the roaring fire here. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? In other words, God will incinerate the entire earth, the entire planet. Not just two cities somewhere over in Israel. Israel. But, according to his promise, verse 13, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, and then don't miss this, in which, what? Righteousness dwells. God is righteous. He dwells in heaven. And all those who receive his righteousness will dwell there with him as well in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the glory of the gospel, beloved. That's what we look forward to. Amen? And until then, we have the privilege of telling as many people as possible the good news of salvation. Or as someone said, it's like handing out life reserves on the Titanic. We're going down. It's it's inevitable. It's happening. We're sinking. But hell, here's a life jacket. Here's how you can escape from drowning. Here's how you can survive. And the life code is, of course, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the picture of how you rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says in 2 Peter that he was righteous, and we know that righteousness was attributed to him by faith, by grace through faith, just like it was for Abraham and everyone else in the Old Testament and it's through the righteousness that we receive from you that we're able to escape the wrath to come. And so, Lord, we're just so grateful this morning that even though you are a consuming fire, and that we are, as Jonathan Edwards says, sinners in the hands of an angry God, it's, and yet those same hands were pierced for our transgressions. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he experienced all your wrath for our sin, And so I pray that if there's anyone here today that doesn't understand the gospel, that you would grant them repentance and faith so that your wrath will no longer abide on them. And Lord, those of us who have been rescued from the wrath to come, Lord, that we would show our gratitude to you by hating sin as much as you hate it and compassionately confronting the culture with the unchanging standard of your word and the life-changing truth of the gospel. Make us a light on a hill, salt and light, as it were, Lord, that we would be known for speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.